Good evening, everyone. I'd like to say thank you for dinner. That was delightful. Um, and uh, I would also just like to say again, um, thank you for having me out here uh, last, last evening and, and today. I've just uh, really just enjoyed getting to know you and uh, chatting with you and talking about uh, the Anglican Church and classical education and uh, several other different things with various uh, of you. Uh, and you've uh, welcomed my family and me, and we're just so, so grateful and, and honored to be asked to, to be here with you. <clears throat> Am I okay? Um, so you'll recall in my first session last evening that I tried to conclude uh, with um, identifying three things that archaeology is good for. Uh, the first one was context. The second one was confirmation. The third one was clarification. Okay, there's obviously some overlap in those in those things. They can uh, a certain thing, a certain artifact or, or a collection of artifacts might uh, check a couple of those different boxes. Um, but tonight, in this last of the four uh, talks, I'd like to focus on the way in which archaeology can clarify our reading of biblical texts. Um, and to do that, I would like to hone in, uh, uh-oh, what's going on here? There we are. Talk, there we go. Uh, I'd like to hone in on the archaeology of religion in ancient Israel. What can we learn about ancient Israelite religion uh, or uh, perhaps I should say religions, because not all of the evidence of religion is particularly biblical, as I will, uh, as I will show here in just a minute. Uh, the Old Testament is full of evidence that the people of Israel and Judah were faithless. Okay? Uh, all kinds of biblical texts calling out God's people uh, for um, unfaithfulness to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, this is just a small sampling of texts that could be uh, uh, cited uh, to, to make this point, but I, I thought off the top of my head of Numbers 25, where some Israelite men are uh, enticed by some Moabite women to worship uh, Baal. Uh, so that's Numbers 25. It's referenced again in Psalm 106. I thought then again of Judges chapter 6, where uh, Gideon uh, tears down an altar of Baal. It's good that he did that, but, but obviously it indicates that there was an altar to Baal there to tear down in the first place, okay, which is bad news. Um, in fact, Gideon, if you remember in the text, become, he gets a second name, Jerubbaal, the one who contends against Baal, uh, is meaning that name. I thought of 1 Kings 16 to 18, uh, Jezebel, who is remembered as being uh, this, uh, this, uh, this prince, this queen who introduces all kinds of apostasy into Israel. Uh, and then, of course, Elijah, uh, you think of place, uh, great stories like Elijah against the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel in, in 1 Kings 18, where, uh, you know, Elijah has this great scene taunting the prophets of Baal. I'm talking B-A-A-L, right? That's how I pronounce it. You might call him Baal. Just add that in. Uh, and he, uh, he, he has this whole sacrifice scene set up where there's this, you know, this bull to be sacrificed, and he calls upon the prophets of Baal to see if they can call upon Baal to come down and consume the bull. Uh, and, of course, he doesn't. And so they start lacerating themselves, cutting themselves, trying to get the attention of Baal. And, of course, nothing happens, right? And so then what does Elijah do? He uh, pours water all over the sacrifice and just tries to make it all but impossible that this thing could catch on fire. And then he say, prays a simple prayer, and boom, the, the offering goes up in smoke to prove that Baal is, well, nothing, non-existent, and the God of Israel is 
Going down the list, uh, numerous kings of Israel are accused of infidelity uh, to, to God uh, through worship of foreign uh, deities. I happen to just mention there Ahaziah and, uh, in um, 1 Kings 22. The Judahites, this is horrific. There's some evidence that the Judahites were doing very bad things with their children. Okay? And the text acknowledges that in a number of places. Um, Asa's mother, King Asa, uh, she worshipped Asherah. The text is very clear about that. Manasseh, the one who, gets, uh, who, who takes the credit, or I should say the blame, uh, for getting Israel into exile, uh, goes so far as to put an image of Asherah in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. It simply doesn't get any more faithless than that. To put a, a temple, uh, put an image, an icon of this, uh, of this so-called goddess in the house of the one true God. Yet he did it. And the list could go on. Okay, so the point is, the biblical text makes it abundantly clear that apostasy was a real problem in ancient Israel and Judah. Okay. Well, what can we learn about these deities and how the biblical writers handled them? So what I'd like to do uh, uh, in the next little bit is to introduce you to these Canaanite deities, kind of some of the things that they stood for and how they affected or how they got co-opted into the lives of ancient Israelites and Judahites. And then at the end, I would look at, I'd like to look at one way that the biblical authors addressed this problem. Okay, so starting with Baal. What can we learn about Baal from archaeology and uh, non-biblical ancient texts? You see here on the right side of the screen an image of Baal. If you're standing far away, you, you might um, have a hard time uh, seeing it, but you, you can see a man standing with his right arm raised up high. Can you see that much? And in his hand, he's got a, like, a, like a, a mace or a club or something. Like He's, he's got it lifted up as, a, as if he's about to smite somebody. Okay? Then in his uh, left hand... He's holding something that looks quite strange. It's a lightning bolt. He's holding a lightning bolt in his hand. Why? Because in the ancient world, Baal was understood to be a storm god. He was the rain giver. So whenever a storm, a thunderstorm happened, ancient Canaanite people would attribute that to Baal. So they attributed storms and rain to being his work. Whenever it thundered, they attributed that to being his voice. So Baal was understood to be the rain giver, the, the thunderer. Uh, as I said, he's depicted here uh, as, uh, holding a lightning bolt. I don't know if you can see in the back, but down here, there's some, he's standing on squiggly lines, okay? waves. He's, he's standing on top of waves, as if he's walking on the, on the ocean. Okay? Why? It's because in uh, ancient Canaanite mythology, and I'm going to talk about this a, a little bit more later, uh, Baal was credited with being the one who had vanquished uh, his nemesis, Yom which was another deity. Yom is the Hebrew word for sea, or the Canaanite word for sea. Okay? Uh, to this day in modern Hebrew, uh, the, the, the word for sea in modern Hebrew is yam, Y-A-M. So as a, sy- a symbolic uh, indication that, Yah- that, uh, that Baal had conquered the sea, here he is standing on top of the waves, depicted, depicted as a warrior with a club in one hand, a lightning bolt in the other, his pointed uh, horned helmet up here. And then if you can see down here, there's a little guy. See that little guy? Any thoughts as to what that represents? Say that again. A child. a child, perhaps. If you could get a little closer, you could see that he's actually like, like an adult. Okay. This is probably depicting a king. Okay. So this, uh, this is a limestone uh, stela, an image with an inscription on it, uh, from the city of Ugarit. 
Okay, uh, if you have your maps that I handed out last night, I think Ugar is on the on the um, the ancient Near Eastern side of the map. I hope it is. If it's not, it should be more or less in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean uh, Sea. It's right on the coast. The city of Ugar was inhabited uh, it, it, throughout the late Bronze Age. It was this very very prosperous city where they found something like 1,500 uh, ancient texts uh, in a palace and a couple of libraries and an archive. To find that kind of, that, that quantity of texts at one site is unparalleled in the ancient world. Uh, so it was a very a literarily prosperous intellectual city um, that was occupied roughly between, oh, say, 1,500 and 1,200 or 1,400 and 1,200. And then it was destroyed at 1,200 as a result of, you guessed it, sea peoples. Remember them from earlier today, right? They, it was destroyed right at the end of the, uh, the late Bronze Age. We actually have letters from the king of, of Ugarit uh, writing a letter to his brother king, the king of Cyprus, saying, sea peoples are in my city. Please come help me. And of course he didn't. Okay. So anyway, this is an image of Baal that was uncovered at the city of Ugarit. The man in front of him, therefore, is probably the king of Ugarit. Okay. Depicted small and yet still depicted on the stela, right? So it's an honor to him, I guess, that he's depicted, but he's depicted as small in comparison to Baal. What this is trying to communicate is that Baal, to the king of Ugarit and within the Ugaritic pantheon, is, uh, is sort of the sovereign deity, one deity among others, but he's kind of the chief deity. Uh, and then the king sort of lives and operates beneath Baal's protective hand, right? He's kind of in front of Baal, so Baal's got his eye on him, and he's lifted up his mace, and he's got his lightning bolt out in front of him, as if to say that Baal kind of goes above and before the king of Ugarit, okay? Okay, moving on. Here's another image of Baal. Once again, seems like he's, he's got like uh, maybe a moon over here indicating that he like operates in the heavens. He's still got this lightning bolt figure in his hand, okay? This time, he's standing on top of a bull. Why? Well, because bulls represent strength, power. Okay, so this is a, a depiction of the power of Baal, according to the ancient Mesopotamian mind. So this is a, a, a clay plaque that comes from a town called Iskali in Mesopotamia, dating to roughly the first half of the second millennium BC, somewhere in the range of 2000 to 1600 uh, BC. But just note again, the things that this uh, depiction of Baal has in common with the previous one, namely that he's depicted with this kind of, uh, with the celestial stuff, with the moon and so forth. He's, he operates kind of in the heavens uh, and that he's also got this lightning bolt. So again, representing his power over rains and storms and these kinds of things. Okay, well then moving on to Asherah. Okay, I mentioned that, uh, that uh, Manasseh had set up an image of Asherah in the, um, in the temple uh, in Jer of Jerusalem. Here's a, a figurine uh, representing, almost certainly representing Asherah. Uh, Asherah is commonly found alongside Baal in the Bible. Okay, so we, uh, we have all kinds of evidence in, in, in the Hebrew uh, Bible of uh, Baal and Asherah being worshipped kind of in tandem as if they're sort of like a, like a kind of a divine couple or something like this. Okay, where you find one, you very often find the other. Um, uh, many of the biblical texts that speak of Asherah speak of her... Um, in this very kind of uh, opaque and sort of confusing way. So we have these references to an Asherah pole, 
Uh, she's often worshipped underneath trees. Okay, so she's um, affiliated with uh, oak trees or terebinth trees and these kinds of things. And you can see the connection there with poles because poles would have been made out of the trunks of trees. Um, and we have, um, and, and those poles were often set up uh, next to, um, uh, to altars to male deities. Okay, so again, that, that connection between Baal worship and Asherah worship probably. So what you're looking at here is called a pillar figurine, uh, of which we have many. I say dozens, it's probably more than dozens, uh, from basically every archaeological period uh, in, in, in ancient Israel. Okay, so these are, these are totally ubiquitous. And you can see, here's more of them, that they're pretty... Um, well, simple and rudimentary and so forth, except for the ways in which they accentuate certain parts, okay? Probably because these were used in some sort of a fertility cult, right? As a way of trying to uh, entice uh, the gods, as it were, to, to give the rains. Remember that Baal is a storm deity and to make the earth heart, uh, fruitful, to make livestock fruitful, uh, to make human beings fruitful and all these other kinds of things, okay? Moving on. Here's another depiction of Asherah. On the left, well, both of these are called cult stands. Okay? These were uh, things, that's, uh, like little altars that people would have put on the roof of their houses. Remember we talked about how people spent a lot of time on the roof of their houses earlier today? So these typically would have been found and used on, a, on the roof of somebody's house to offer things like incense to the, to the de deities. The one on the left, both of these date to the 10th century BC, so roughly you're talking the time of David. Okay, this one here on the left comes from a, a, a town called Ta'anak. Uh, I doubt that's on your map of Israel, although it, it may be, but it's kind of right next door to Megiddo. Okay, it's right on the, on the southern side of the Jezreel Valley. Um, and you'll notice that it's divided up into four tiers, okay? four layers. You've got this bottom one, then this second one, a third, a fourth, and then the top. The first tier and the third tier both offer depictions of Asherah. Okay? And the bottom tier, here's Lady Asherah. She's pretty rudimentary. Um, it's kind of just poorly done here. Well, it's corroded by time. But this is Asherah down here, and she's flanked by two lions, okay? perhaps showing her virility and power. Then on the second tier, we have this empty space, which is very curious. It's kind of puzzled um, archaeologists for a long time, flanked by two cherubs. On the third tier, we have two lions, and in between it, we have a tree, a palm tree, probably representing the Asherah tree, okay? Uh, and then at the top, we have a winged sun disk, okay? Which is also a divine symbol, right? If you go look at uh, Egyptian iconography, uh, the Egyptian gods are often represented as these suns that have wings, okay? That kind of language also gets brought into the, into the Old Testament. Uh, there's that lovely verse in uh, Malachi about the sun shall rise with healing in his wings. Does that ring a bell to you? Okay. So that, that kind of way of thinking about, um, uh, about God um, is, is pretty, pretty um, ubiquitous in the ancient world. So again, a cult stand that clearly has Asherah all over it. Okay. Uh, from... Tanakh and the 10th century when that town should have been squarely Israelite. Does that make sense? Shouldn't have been there. They shouldn't have been doing this. Okay. On the right-hand side, you see another cult stand, uh, slightly simpler in the sense that it's not so um, detailed over here. What it does have is this sort of arched doorway, okay, going to the bottom. These windows, five windows in the front with a palm tree in the middle. 
Palm tree again, probably representing an Asherah tree. Okay. On the top, you've got these four horns, okay, uh, where uh, incense or whatever could have been burned in between them. So again, you have uh, an, a, a small sort of personal domestic altar uh, that seems to be devoted to Asherah. Okay, okay well, things get um, <laughs> even more strange. Because what we find is that not only were they worshiping Baal in ancient Israel, as the biblical text squarely says they were, and not only were they worshiping Asherah in ancient Israel and Judah, as the biblical text says they clearly were, things went from bad to worse uh, in terms of biblical religion in the sense that uh, we have very, very clear evidence, certainly by the 8th century, and one might even say this about the, about the Tanakh cult stand, that, that uh, Ash, the Asherah cult had been sort of integrated with the worship of the God of Israel, Yahweh. Okay? And so what you're looking at here is an inscription dating to, uh, to the 8th century BC. Uh, and this was an inscription that was found in a funerary context, so like in a grave. Okay? It was in, a, in like a, a, over a, to, a, a cave that a, this fellow Uriahu had been buried in. And you can see right from the beginning one very strange feature of this thing, which is, what, is the, what do you see in the middle of it? A hand, right? Upside down hand, right? It's not totally clear what this is, right? Uh, scholars, to be an archaeologist, you have to have some degree of an imagination, okay? You've got <laughs> to read and use your, use, you know, be creative a little bit. Archaeologists and, and epigraphers have suspected that this might be some sort of like a, like a, like a, um, some, some, something that might be intended to like ward off evil spirits or something like this. Um, it's not totally clear. What is more clear is that as you, as you look above the hand, you can see letters, Okay, these are Paleo-Hebrew letters. If you open up a Hebrew Bible today, this is not what the alphabet looks like. But uh, up until, um, certainly uh, up until the exile at least in the 6th century, this is what Hebrew letters looked like. Uh, and there are a couple of slightly different ways that you can render what this text says. But either way you cut it, it links Yahweh the God of Israel and his Asherah. Right? As if somehow they like go together. Okay? Uriahu, the wealthy man, had this written, namely, blessed be Uriahu by Yahweh, and from his enemies, O Asherah, save him. Or maybe you want to go with Uriahu, the prince, uh, I'd kind of rather say the wealthy one, wrote it, blessed be Uriahu by Yahweh and his Asherah, as if Asherah somehow belongs to Yahweh in some sort of odd relationship, okay? Uh, from his in uh, for from his enemies, he, that is Yahweh, saved him. However we parse out exactly how we ought to render that inscription, what is clear from it is that it puts Asherah and the God of Israel together in ways that the biblical authors would have hated. Okay? Uh, but they acknowledged that this was happening. Again, remember, uh, it's not so long after this that Manasseh is putting up an image to Asherah in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Okay? This is only showing that that kind of thing was happening. Okay, it happens again. Uh, I couldn't find a, a good photo of this, and so what you're looking at here is an is a artist's rendering of the real thing. So these are images that were painted onto the side of a, of a large storage jar called a pithos. Again, this is something, I showed you a picture of one earlier today. It comes up to probably my chest. of just a giant water pitcher kind of thing um, that a scribe had gotten a hold of and had 
doodled on, <laughs> okay? Uh, on the right-hand side, you see this collection of animals. You see a lion down here at the bottom. Pretty well done, actually. Uh, you see this uh, tree of life thing. We might associate that again with Asherah because she's so, she's so frequently uh, uh, linked to fertility and to this tree thing, this pole thing that the biblical text so frequently talks about. Up here, this looks like a boar. I don't know, maybe part of a, a cow or something whose head is missing. Uh, some sort of a cat or something over here. I, I don't know. And then over here on the left-hand side, you have another scene. Not at all clear to me or to anybody else, I think, what the relationship of these two scenes is. It's just some guy sitting around a campfire late at night and he's bored. It's not totally clear. Uh, I should mention that Kuntiladaj Rood is, a, is, a, is like a, a, a way station, like a, like a, it's called a caravansary, right? It's like a, a, it's like a little town that exists way down in the south of Israel, way down in the desert, uh, where it's dry and super hot and just a harsh, totally inhospitable place to live, okay? And the only reason this town is here is because there's a, uh, the spice route goes through it, okay? And you just need places to spend the night and check on people and you just wanna patrol that road or whatever. But this isn't the kind of place that you move to because you wanna live there, okay? So it's totally possible in my, in my imagination that you know, there's people down there just kinda of looking for stuff to do, okay? And so they're drawing it on pots and, and who knows what. On the left-hand side, you see a cow nursing a calf, straightforward enough. Uh, you see uh, a seated being, perhaps a, a lady, playing a lyre. Okay. And then you see these two, whatever they are, in the middle. Okay. To me, their heads look like cows, perhaps. Um, but cows don't stand on two legs, right? Uh, that's pretty clear. Some people have identified these individuals as representations of Bes, B-E-S, who was an Egyptian deity, uh, who's known to have had a long tail that kind of dangled down. Uh, but he usually had, um, Bes was almost always uh, depicted as being a bit more round. He's just, he was a little bit, um, he just is, he's just a little bit rounder. And so these guys are not. And so the identity of these things is odd. Okay. Well then, we have all of these, all this chicken scratch around it, okay? This is a yod, okay? But actually three yods, which is a Hebrew letter. It's the first letter of the divine name. Actually, you heard me say Yahweh, the God of Israel. The first letter is yod. So here's a yod. Uh, we've got some mems over here that makes the M sound. Just a bunch of like doodling. We've got some like hash marks here. What, are they keeping score on a game? I don't know, right? Just, just markings. But then, most interesting of all, is there's this uh, inscription that seems to go underneath the hat or whatever this is of this strange creature here, okay? Now, keep in mind, before I go and read that inscription for you, some of the things that we've seen here. We've seen these, uh, this symbol of, of strength with the lion. We've seen this, uh, what's probably a symbol uh, representing Asherah with this tree of life and this uh, palm thing. We've seen evidence of that in some of the previous slides. Uh, so bear that in mind as we go to the inscription. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to just focus in on, uh, on that little part right there, that little box. In Paleo-Hebrew, it says, I bless you by or to Yahweh of Samaria and by or to his Asherah. Okay. So once again, just as we saw in the previous inscription from Kirbet al-Kom, uh, we have here another inscription in which in some quite strange way that the biblical authors would have despised, the God of Israel is tied to Asherah. 
Okay? What exactly that relationship is, is, uh, is totally debatable. But what really matters for our purposes is that this Lady Asherah, or you could render it Asherata, uh, is, uh, is invoked for a blessing right alongside the God of Israel. Okay. Simply what the text says, but again, the biblical writers would have just hated this. Okay? We know that they did. Okay, so what have we seen so far? Uh, it's totally clear, both from the biblical text itself and from the archaeological record, that people in Israel and Judah were worshiping deities other than Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. Uh, we really don't know for sure how widespread this issue was. Uh, as I mentioned, the Kintilad uh, Ajrud is really far from Jerusalem, and so it's, it's possible, and people have suggested, that because it's so far, way down there in the desert, uh, that they were just kind of rogue. You know, they were doing their own thing, uh, far from the oversight of the powers that be in Jerusalem. Okay, that might be the case for Kintilad Ajrud, but I, I, forgive me, I don't think I mentioned this when we were talking about the previous inscription from, from Kirbet Al-Kom, the one with the hand. That one's 10 or 15 miles from Jerusalem, maybe 20. It's just like, it's not like it's way out off the radar, okay? Uh, so you might be able to explain Kintilad Ajrud that way, but folks near the city of Lachish, between the city of Lachish and Hevron, which is where Kintilad Ajrud is, or, which is where Kirbet Al-Kom is, are also invoking uh, Asherah for, for a blessing and for protection. Uh, and we would also add that even if uh, people would, were to say that a site like Kuntilad Ajrud is just kind of off the grid and they've gone rogue and they're doing their own thing, I, I still think the biblical text just like readily acknowledges in a bunch of different places and in a bunch of different ways that apostasy was a real issue, right? That people were uh, constantly being seduced by uh, the gods of the Canaanites who remained in the land and by the gods of the uh, nations around them uh, to worship false gods and to do so often in very um, uh, heinous and egregious ways. Okay? Uh, again, Manasseh brought the Asherah fertility cult into the temple in Jerusalem. And then here's another, um, another just like really um, jarring totally jarring um, example of how bad things got. Let me just read these uh, few verses to you here from 2 Kings 23. Uh, the context here in 2 Kings 23 is, uh, goes like this. So uh, in 2 Kings 22, um, so the K King Josiah is the king of Judah now. It's late 7th century BC. Uh, Josiah reigns from roughly 640 down to 609. He's killed in battle against the, uh, against the Egyptians in 609 uh, BC. Uh, and so, at some point during the reign of Josiah, um, a, a high priest named Hilkiah goes into the temple. The temples were known to have library archives. He, this high priest Hilkiah goes into the temple and he finds a copy of the old law. And that, what he finds is basically what we know of as the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? So he goes into the temple and he finds what we now know as Deuteronomy. And one of the things that Deuteronomy makes a really, really, really big deal out of is monotheism. And a second thing that Deuteronomy makes a really, really, really big deal out of is that Jerusalem is supposed to be the center of Israelite worship. Okay? So Deuteronomy hated the notion that there could be like temples elsewhere in the world, right? 
the, the, the temple at Dan. Some of you mentioned earlier that you'd been to Dan. Uh, the, 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 the kings of Israel had set up a temple there. The book of Deuteronomy hated that, just totally despised that, because Jerusalem was the city that God had chosen to put his name there. Deuteronomy chapter 12 was the key text to look at there. So when Hilkiah finds this, uh, this um, early copy of the book of Deuteronomy, he sees, A, monotheism, and B, we need to get more serious about Jerusalem. Uh, and we need to like really kind of clean our house. We need to uh, go about some reforms here. So he stages what's just a very early reformation, okay? So pencil this in right alongside 1517. This is like what, 620 BC or plus or minus 10 or 15 years, okay? Uh, and so Hilkiah uh, goes to Jerusalem, he says, uh, or he goes to Josiah and he says, we really need to clean house, we need a reform. Uh, and then let me read here just these three verses or four verses from uh, chapter 23. So this is again, 2 Kings uh, 23. So they find Deuteronomy or the early copy of Deuteronomy in chapter 22. And chapter 23, they get busy doing something about it. And here's uh, verse 4, 2 Kings uh, 23, verse 4. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. Okay, he just acknowledged that there were vessels in the temple of God in Jerusalem that were dedicated to worshiping Baal and Asherah and others, the hosts of the heaven. In other words, the house of God... The house of Yahweh had ceased to be exclusively the house of Yahweh. It had just become this sort of place of worship, okay, for whoever you want, okay. Uh, the text goes on. Uh, and uh, and uh, Hilkiah burned these vessels outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel, a city up north of Jerusalem where Jeroboam had established another sanctuary. So they're carrying this apostasy up to this apostate city where it really belongs. Uh, verse 5, he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places. These are altars outside of Jerusalem. Again, Deuteronomy can't stand that. Uh, so they tear down the high places and get rid of the priests that had served at those high places uh, at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal and to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. So we're defrocking a bunch of apostate priests. And Hilkiah brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. And he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. So they smashed the Asherah image that Manasseh had brought into the temple. They smash it to pieces. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. I won't comment on that because, uh, well, it just doesn't seem pertinent to. But just hear what he said, right? That he tore down the houses of the cult prostitutes that were attached to the temple of the living God. Tells you that there was all kinds of really nefarious, bad, wicked stuff happening in connection to the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Okay, the biblical text acknowledges this. Okay, readily admits it, and the archaeological record bears it out. Okay, we see it uh, all over, uh, all over the place in ancient Israel, and this gives rise to the question of okay, well, how how were the how are the stewards of true religion going to respond to this, right? How are God's priests, like the legit ones, the real ones, the faithful ones, and the prophets, the legit prophets, how are they going to respond? Well, we've already seen some ways, right? They're going to clean house. They're going to demolish all of these, uh, these um, uh, 
icons and statues and vessels and all these other kinds of things. They're going to physically just get rid of it. The prophets are going to rail, uh, as they do. Uh, Jeremiah does, and Amos does, and Ezekiel does, all of Isaiah does, rail against uh, the worship of foreign gods, gods other than Yahweh. What I'd like to do with the remainder of our time this evening is to look at how one hymn writer, one hymn writer, one poet, responded to this infidelity in a really, really powerful, polemical, and beautiful way by writing Psalm 29. A Psalm of David. A Psalm of David. Somebody asked last night, what should we do with the superscriptions of the Psalms? And, and, and uh, To me, it's totally possible that David wrote Psalms. Okay? There's no way to prove it. If David wrote it, then this would have to originate in the 10th century and it would be roughly contemporary with uh, the Tanakh cult stand that we looked at, uh, the, the, the other cult stand right behind, beside it. Even if it's somebody writing in David's name and this recollection that David was this great musician who was uh, gifted with music, as we know from the book of 1 Samuel, uh, and this poem was written sometime later, doesn't make all that much difference to me. What, what does make a difference to me is how do we read the text in light of what we've just seen? So let me read this psalm to you, and then I want to read another text to you, and I want to try to put these two things together, and then think about the way in which this psalm is responding to apostasy. Does that make sense? Are there questions uh, so far? This might be a good place for me to just pause and take any questions if you have any. I do. Sure. The story about Hezekiah. After Hezekiah. Yeah. Yeah, so there are actually kind of like two reforms, right? Because Hezekiah has his, his little reform. And then there's Manasseh, who the Bible uh, uh, doesn't have a single positive thing to say about. Uh, and then there's Josiah. So it goes bad, uh, good, bad, good, and then kind of bad again for a while. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, other questions? If you ask questions, you give me a drink of, you give me a chance to drink water, and that's just a kindness to me. So. What's your question, sweet girl? Okay, Psalm 29. It's one of my uh, favorite psalms, by the way. Um, a psalm that, um, that we in the ACNA ought to just, uh, to, well, cherish, memorize, uh, because if the ACNA is not nothing if we're, the ACNA is nothing if we're not serious about the power of God's word, right? Uh, I would say that we, uh, well, I'm a, a priest in the diocese of the living word, right? We take very seriously in the Anglican Church of North America the power of God's word, and that's what this psalm uh, celebrates. Uh, but I want to submit to you that it also does even more than that as ways that I hope you'll see. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice, uh, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. What a beautiful psalm.
Totally, totally you should memorize. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Amen. Uh, Again, a, a psalm that, uh, that celebrates and praises God for the power of his word. When God speaks, things happen, right? When God speaks, uh, deer go into labor and give birth. When God speaks, the mighty cedars of Lebanon snap like toothpicks. Nothing stands in the way of the voice of the Lord. Okay, that much we can get. But what happens when we read this psalm in the light of other texts from the ancient world. Here, I want to bring you back to the city of Ugar, right here. I mentioned this uh, city at the very beginning of, uh, of this talk, uh, and I mentioned that this is a city that was uh, inhabited in the late Bronze Age, roughly uh, 1,500 or so down to around 1,200, maybe just a, a little bit thereafter, until it was uh, sacked and destroyed, really, to never be occupied again. Um, at around 1,200 BC by marauding sea peoples. And we have letters, as I mentioned, describing that very event. Uh, and as I mentioned, there were also some 1,500 texts that have been discovered at this city. Uh, the city of Ugar has been excavated almost continuously for about 100 years now. It was actually found by accident by a Syrian farmer in 1927 who was just out plowing his field one day, and he came across an ancient wall, and he wrote, I was going to say he called, but he probably wrote to uh, a scholar and said, hey, I think I found something. You should come out and check it out. And so ever since, almost ever since, perhaps not totally continuously, but basically for 100 years now, the city has been uh, excavated uh, almost continuously. Uh, and as I mentioned, they found some 1,500 texts at this city uh, in several different uh, locations, a, a priest's uh, archive, a couple of libraries attached to a, a, a temple, uh, 1,500 texts. And most of these texts are in a language called, you guessed it, Ugaritic, after the city of Ugarit. Okay? Ugaritic is a fascinating language uh, because it's a cuneiform language like Akkadian or Babylonian. I've showed you some cuneiform texts like these wedges, you know, where they're making letters using the end of a reed, which is like kind of triangular shaped. Uh, and so they, they kind of like poke the letters into wet clay and then they bake them and send them off to wherever they need to go or whatever. Uh, it's a it's written in cuneiform letters, which is typical of Eastern Semitic languages like Sumerian and Akkadian and Babylonian and so forth. But it's actually a West Semitic language, very, very closely related to Biblical Hebrew. Okay? So you might think of the Ugaritic language as being like kind of the grandfather language to Biblical Hebrew. Okay? It looks differently, different because they're using a different mode of making letters, but the actual grammar and vocabulary of it is very closely related to Biblical Hebrew. Um, other languages are also attested at the city of Ugar. Akkadian is attested there. Hurrian is attested there. There's some hieroglyphic Luvian attested there. I don't know if you care about any of that. But there's a bunch of texts. That's the main point. A bunch of texts, most in, in Ugaritic. What matters more than uh, how many texts there were and what languages they were in is what's the content of these texts? Well, there's all kinds of stuff. There's letters, there's receipts, there's legal documents, there are liturgies for how you celebrate feasts and sacrifices and all these different kinds of things. One of the most interesting and one of the most illuminating texts found at the city of Ugarit is a text called the Epic of Baal. Sometimes you'll see it called the, the Baal Cycle or the Myth of Baal. It's a series of six tablets written in cuneiform. Uh, the tablets are a little bit damaged, so we don't have the whole text, okay? Like at the tops and bottoms, we're missing some lines here and there. And scholars have sometimes arranged these six tablets in slightly different ways. So, you know, you, you, there's some variation in how exactly people understand the story to progress, but basically uh, it goes like this. It's, it's about, well, Baal, okay? And the first part of the story is about how Baal conquered Yom, 
the sea. Remember, we saw that uh, image a little while ago where Baal is standing on the waves, right, symbolizing the fact that he had conquered that force of chaos and instability, Yom, sea. Well, once he's conquered Yom, his arch nemesis, he gets a little mopey because he's the only deity in the Ugaritic pantheon who doesn't have a house, namely a temple. And so he uh, co-ops his sister and some other friends to go to Ale, who's like kind of the grandfather, but he's like a little bit checked out. He's like the grandpa of God, but he's like a little bit, he's like just kind of over like all the responsibility. And so he, he, he goes, he, he, Baal sends his sister a knot to go talk to Ale, the sort of grandpa God, but he's like kind of, you know, he's basically got his feet kicked up now and he doesn't really want to be bothered. But the, the request from Ale is, hey, can we build a house for Baal? Uh, and, uh, and, and one of the things that, that Anat uh, says to Ale in this, in this epic is, hey, if we don't give him a house, he's going to get really grumpy. And if Baal gets really grumpy, we're all going to starve, basically, because remember, we've given him, well, he's the storm god. We need him to be happy so that he'll give us rains because it's rain that <laughs> enables us to eat. And so she uses a little bit of rhetoric. Uh, Eventually, yeah, Ale agrees. He grants permission for Baal to build a house or a temple. And that's where I'd like to pick up right here. I'd like to just read a couple of, uh, just a little snippet of this text. We're not going to read anywhere near the whole thing. This is just a little excerpt. I'd like to read this, and then I'd like to come back to Psalm 29 and see how this text from the Epic of Baal might help us think about how the biblical writers responded to the widespread apostasy in ancient Israel. So, Ale grants permission for Baal to build a house that is a temple. And then Lady Asherah of the sea replied, okay, so what do we see? Already we see Baal and Asherah tied together in this text, just as we saw in some Hebrew inscriptions a little while ago. Lady Asherah of the sea replied, you are great, O Ale, you are truly wise. Your gray beard truly instructs you. So she's praising Ale. She's thanking him for giving permission to grant, uh, to, to allow Baal to build a house. Now, now that you've been kind to him, he's going to stay in a good mood. Now Baal will provide his enriching rain, provide a rich watering in a downpour, and he will sound his voice in the clouds, flash his lightning to the earth. Let him complete his house of cedar. Let him construct his house of bricks. Let it be announced to Baal the conqueror, quote, Call a caravan into your house, supplies into your palace. The mountains will bring you much silver. The hills find gold in abundance. The best ore will be brought to you. And build a house of silver and gold, a house of lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is like a blue stone that's uh, harvested, uh, mined in uh, places like Afghanistan. And then Maiden Anat was glad. She stamped her feet and left the earth. Then she headed to Baal on the peak of Safon. A thousand fields, 10,000 acres at each step. Okay, just some things to note here. First of all, I already commented, we have Lady Asherah connected to Lady Baal. We've already seen that this evening. We have Baal being connected to storms, right, rains, connected to uh, thunder sound, his voice in the clouds. It sounds like thunder, right? His lightning he will give to the earth, so he's connected to lightning, uh, he's going to make his house, his temple out of cedars. In fact, cedars of Lebanon. Okay? He's connected to the north, uh, the peak of Tzaphon. In, in uh, Semitic language, uh, Tzaphon is the word for north. Okay? So if you're an Israelite, Tzaphon is the land of Phoenicia or Ugarit. 
right? It's what's up there. It's Baal, Phoenicia territory, Ugaritic territory. Okay, keep that in mind. Let's come back now to Psalm 29. I want you to see that with an awareness of this little snippet of the Baal epic, Psalm 29 can be read as a polemic against Baal worship, such that everything that the Phoenicians and the Ugaritians attribute to Baal, the Canaanites attribute to Baal, the psalm says absolutely not. That does not belong to Baal. Watch. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. In the Baal epic, as I mentioned, Baal demonstrates his power and prowess by conquering his nemesis, Yom, sea, the waters, and whom all the, of whom all the other gods are afraid of and submit to. Yom, uh, as I mentioned, is a Hebrew word for sea. But here in Psalm 29, who is over the sea and its waters? It's not Baal, right? Here in Psalm 29, the one who is over the sea and the waters is Yahweh. The God of Israel. You know when you see all these caps, that's the divine name, right? Yahweh. So it's taking a, something that had been attributed to Baal by people who were Baal worshippers and saying, not so fast. Baal is fake news, okay? Yahweh is over the waters and the sea. Um, likewise, whose voice is it? Uh, whose voice thunders and speaks powerfully and authoritatively over the waters? In the Baal epic, it's Baal who thunders and dishes out lightning. In Psalm 29, the poet says, no, Yahweh, the God of Israel. To him belong the thunders and the bolts of lightning and the powerful rainstorms that we so desperately need. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Again, in the Baal epic, Baal's voice is described this way, but the psalmist wants to make it clear that uh, that that voice, that that powerful voice that controls the universe is not Baal's, but actually Yahweh's, who is the real God of glory, the one uh, to whom glory is due. Uh, Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. We saw that cedars showed up in the epic of Baal, did we not? where they were going to be used to build Baal's house, his temple. And yet, the psalmist claims that the voice of the Lord breaks those cedars in half like a toothpick. And so whereas the epic of Baal celebrates that Yahweh has vanquished sea, that great force of chaos and instability, and now as a result, he gets a temple out of it, and that temple's going to be made out of cedars, Psalm 29 says, I don't care about your temple made out of cedars. The God of Israel snaps those things in half. Baal is not the powerful God. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Well, you know where Lebanon is, to the north of Israel. And Syrian is the Phoenician name of Mount Hermon, a mountain just above, uh, to the north of Tel Dan, uh, to the, just to the north of Israel, up in, in, in Phoenicia. Uh, and so this, the, the geographic uh, perspective of Psalm 29 is clearly looking to the north, up to the land of Phoenicia and Ugarit. The land that, ostensibly, according to the Baal epic, Baal rules. Not so, according to Psalm 29. According to Psalm 29, Yahweh, the God of Israel, makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. In Psalm 29, it's not Baal who rules the northern lands. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
who rules the northern lands. In Psalm 29, verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. I showed you a little while ago, and I touched on this just a second ago again, that in uh, images we've seen, Baal holds a lightning bolt. But Psalm 29 says, nope, (laughs) no, sir, that would belong to Yahweh. It is God's voice who flashes forth flames of fire and lightning. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord, verse 9, makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, in his temple, all cry glory. And so whereas Baal is busy building his house out of cedar, the very thing that Psalm 29 says is like toothpicks to God, right? God's voice can snap that palace of cedar in half just like that. It's actually in the house of Yahweh where all cry glory. And so while the house of Baal sits in dust, insofar as it exists at all, because the voice of Yahweh has broken those cedars in half, meantime, in the house of the Lord, all cry glory. Okay. Verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Uh, I should have put in here a little uh, diagram representing an an ancient worldview, an ancient ancient, um, cosmology. But basically what's in view here is this idea that the earth is this giant kind of circular disk. It's flat, right? We're pre-Copernicus, pre-Galileo, all this. The earth is flat to the psalmist. Um, But you can look up and the sky is blue and sometimes it rains, right? And so presumably there are waters up there, right? Those are the waters above. And there must be a dome, kind of a glass dome, that keeps the waters from coming down all the time, because after all, it doesn't always rain. Sometimes we wish it would rain, and it doesn't, right? So there must be some barrier, some sort of a glass dome type of a thing up there that holds the waters above, up above. Well, on the other hand, you can dig a well and you can find water. And there are springs that seem to bubble up with fresh water. And there are rivers and ponds and lakes and these kinds of things that seem to indicate that there are not only waters above, but also waters below. That's just kind of the basic ancient Near Eastern worldview. Well, I mentioned that dome, right? Psalm 29.10 says that the Lord sits enthroned above that upper flood, right? He's the one that sits enthroned up above the waters above. The Lord sits enthroned up there as king forever. That means more than it says, okay? Because if he sits enthroned above the flood, if he's the one who's enthroned up there, he rules not only over Zaphon, not only over Ugar, not only over Phoenicia, not only over Jerusalem, he sits enthroned over the entire world. All of the nations belong to him, and he is king over all of them. One thinks here of a text like Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 22, going to 23. It is Yahweh who sits above the circle of the earth. Remember I mentioned the earth is like a flat disk? Yahweh sits above the circle of the, of the earth, and its inhabitants in his sight are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and he who spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That's essentially what Psalm 29.10 is getting at. It isn't Yahweh. It isn't Baal who sits enthroned above the flood. It isn't Baal who's in charge of the storms and the rains and all of these necessary things that the earth needs to bear fruit. That would belong to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so the psalm concludes, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. What I'd like you to see here, I'm not saying that the author of Psalm 29 knew the Baal epic verbatim. I can't make that connection quite so directly. 
What I would propose, because there are so many points of continuity, so many points of overlap between the psalm and the Ugaritic Baal ep epic, it seems to me that it, at minimum, these kinds of notions about Baal were just like in the cultural air, right? That these, ca these Canaanite myths had so deeply infiltrated culture that the psalmist just knew this stuff, and he heard people talking about it. He'd heard people talking about Baal's house of cedar. He heard people talking about Baal with the lightning bolts and his voice being thunder and all these other kinds of things. And he wrote a, he wrote a hymn to say, none of that is true. None of that belongs to Baal. All of that belongs to the God of Israel. Okay, my point here, remember the last C that I gave you was clarification, okay? Psalm 29, as I said before we even started really talking about it, is a beautiful psalm whether you know anything about the epic of Baal or not, right? It's a beautiful psalm that praises God for the power of his word. It, it says to us when God speaks, things happen, okay? And that's a theme we see all over the place in scripture. Little girl, I say to you, get up. When Jesus speaks, things happen, right? When God speaks, things happen. The word of God is living and active, right? Because it's powerful, it's effective, it's efficacious, it's authoritative. Psalm 29 clearly says that. If you knew nothing about the epic of Baal, you would get that much out of the psalm, and that would be well and good, and you should thank God for that, okay? What I've tried to show, though, is that if you do have some knowledge about Canaanite mythology and Canaanite culture, you can keep all of that, because it's all true, it's all well, it's all good biblical interpretation, but you can also see that there's a sense in which the psalm is, is really, really polemical, right? It's really, really going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the worshipers of Baal, saying, you guys are just flat wrong. Everything you are saying, Baal does, or the Baal controls. In fact, the God of Israel does, and the God of Israel controls. So we can use archaeology and extra-biblical texts to clarify, perhaps to nuance, would be another way of getting at it, the meanings of biblical texts. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Conclusion. I'm afraid I've already jumped the gun here on this a little bit, but uh, <laughs> one of the things I've, I've wanted you to see here this evening is that, yet again, as we've seen uh, a handful of times now, archaeology sheds light on the world of the Bible. Okay? Again, I'm not using the word proves the Bible. I'm simply saying that it helps us see the Bible in a fresh light. It helps us to situate the biblical text within its ancient Near Eastern context. And when we do that, I, I hope I've shown tonight, that bears real fruit for biblical interpretation. The other th another thing that I uh, hope that you will take away is that um, non-biblical ancient texts, not just like pots and artifacts of you know, a non-linguistic nature, but also ancient texts outside the Bible, of which we have many, are also really, really illuminating and provide helpful, uh, helpful windows into the biblical world and onto the biblical texts. And so um, with a combination of both texts and artifacts, and here I, by artifact I mean textual and non-textual artifacts, uh, we can arrive at a clear understanding of what the biblical texts meant in their ancient contexts, okay? Um, and again, as I mentioned, uh, I've tried to illustrate this with Psalm 29. Again, I wanna underscore, not everybody can be a Ugaritic scholar. <laughs> Let me say it more strongly. Most, of pe most people should not be Ugaritic scholars, okay? We just don't need that many of them in the world, okay? A handful is all we really need, okay? Uh, but, um, and, and so I, I want you to be confident you could read Psalm 29 and delight in Psalm 29 without any knowledge of that epic. But on the other hand, when, when we do have that epic and when we do read Psalm 29 in that light, we can see that, that it is this lovely hymn of praise for God's word, but it's also a courageous declaration 
um, of who the real deity is. Uh, and so like if I were gonna preach that text, I might just make a little comment about, you know, it, really if you, if you study this, this uh, psalm in, in its ancient world, it's distinctly political and it's an act of courage. It's an act of bravery into a faithless and op- apostate society to lay claim to the name of the one true God. And one might encourage people to have that same kind of courage, that same kind of boldness uh, as they call people to faith in the real God in our own world. Because it's not like apostasy has died, right? It's not like, uh, it's not like there, aren't, uh, there isn't all kinds of faithlessness in our own world. So perhaps we could imitate the virtue of the psalmist there uh, in, his, uh, in his courage and in his, uh, in his faith. Well, again, I've just so enjoyed being with you. Thank you for, for having us out here. Thank you.